So repentance is one of those topics, like I was saying, that really has uh, a lot of trouble surrounding it. People have a visceral, emotional reaction to this concept of repentance. And uh, yet, when you really look at it in its context, it's not that complicated, like most subjects in Scripture. So to illustrate that, if I were to say to you, repent, what comes to mind? What's the first thing that pops into your mind? If I give you a command of, with an exclamation point, repent, what do you think? Change of mind. Well, you know because you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> Pretend like you weren't smart. What, uh, what comes to mind? Feel sorry. Okay, feel sorry. that We're going to talk about that. What else? Acknowledge your sins. Okay, acknowledge your sins. So already we've got three different things that frankly are completely disconnected. Change your mind, uh, acknowledge your sin, and feel sorry for your sin. What else? Admit you're wrong. Admit you're wrong. All right, let's say, let me, um, let me dig a little deeper to get the answer I'm hoping to get. Um, what if you were um, uh, a kid and you're in a convenience store and you're stealing some bubble gum and uh, the guy comes, the cashier comes up behind you and says, repent. What do you think he means? Get down on your knees. Get down on your knees. Well, now he's a nice convenience store. He's a Christian convenience store. Man. A lot of people think repent has to do with a change of behavior. Anybody heard that? or Is that in the range of meaning for some people? So, But we've illustrated the problem here by kind of getting some of these peppered responses in the sense that repentance means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So as we talk about the wells of salvation, we've talked in the past about redemption, we've talked about um, atonement, and now we are moving on to repentance. These are not in any particular order other than just kind of what's on my heart and on my mind. And I had some conversations on Monday, not from people around here, but with some folks about this notion of repentance, and it just reminded me, you know what, this would be a good time to dive into this subject. So we get the, the theme of wells of salvation from Isaiah chapter 12, sort of using this phrase uh, loosely in the context, in Isaiah it's talking about Israel's ultimate salvation, ultimate deliverance into the kingdom someday, but all that comes with that. And of course we know from comparing Scripture with Scripture that the only ones who will ultimately be in the kingdom of heaven are those who by faith have trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. So um, I understand that's not explicitly what Isaiah is talking about, but it's kind of a good metaphor. And so we're kind of digging deep into the wells of salvation and we're coming up tonight with this word of repentance. So let me start by telling you what I'm going to tell you, and then we're going to work our way through it, I'll tell you, and then at the end I'll tell you what I told you. Does that, does that work? That's a pretty common outline. So I just want to be up front that the definition of repentance is a change of mind, as Fred uh, pointed out, and I'll show you why that is. But as a springboard passage in terms of repentance as it relates to our eternal salvation, uh, let's look at Acts 20, 21. Paul is here speaking to the Ephesian elders. He's on his third missionary journey. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He gets to Miletus, and he summons the elders from Ephesus. He didn't want to go back there and talk to them. Why? Anybody remember? Why was Paul a little hesitant to go back to Ephesus? Yeah, they had just had a huge riot, and he had fled from there for his life. So, But he wants to talk to the elders at the church in Ephesus, so he summons them. They come to Miletus, and he's speaking to them. And in that context, so by the way, the year was around 57 A.D., and he says in verse 21, "...testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, I don't know why the King James and New King James translate that last phrase, faith toward... It's actually the Greek preposition ace, and it just means faith in, just like we see it in countless other places in the New Testament. And uh, NIV, NASB, several other translations do translate it in. But probably for rhetorical reasons, since it's repentance toward God, they tried to parallel that in the English translation with faith toward. But the idea here is he was teaching repentance toward God and faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, so one of the things I want you to understand right out of the shoot is there are, these are two different things. And it's pretty clear grammatically here. Repentance toward God is not the same thing as faith. Otherwise, it would be redundant to say repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ or in our Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll come back to that. But this is one uh, passage where repentance is used in the context of eternal salvation. Here's another one. Do you remember in our study through Hebrews, we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, you need to know your ABCs or something like that was the title of that message. Um, but the writer of Hebrews is talking to those first century believers, those Jewish believers who were sort of had regressed in their faith. Many of them had gotten saved uh, in uh, Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So they'd been saved for three decades. And yet when faced with intense persecution and other trials of life, a lot of them you know, were ill-equipped to handle it because they had not really grown in their faith. And in fact, maybe they grew some, but then they regressed. And so he says, you know, we're going to, not go over all the essentials again and in that context he says one of those essentials is the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith in god okay so what he's talking about there is um you know we're we're not going to talk about how you need to change your mind about the futility of good works to commend you to a holy god and instead how you need to have faith to do that that's, that's basic. That's rudimentary. And you should already know that because you're believers, right? So that's the context. Again, I'm just sort of laying the, the foundation here and sort of telling you the big picture. Then we're going to come back and make that case exegetically. Uh, here's another place. This is interesting in Hebrews. Um, uh, in the context of you know Esau being an example of someone who, despite his regret, couldn't get Isaac to repent, he says, for you know that afterward when he, that's Esau, wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance. Though he sought for it diligently with tears, he couldn't get uh, Isaac to change his mind. And in fact, I thought this was interesting, the NIV, which is characteristically more paraphrastic in its translation, it's not always a word for word, it sort of tells you what it means more so than what it says. Um, but sometimes it's actually pretty spot on. And this is one of those cases. Look how the NIV translates this verse. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected because he could bring about no change of mind. And as Fred said, and as we're suggesting tonight, that's what repentance means, a change of mind. So the word, the, the uh, noun, uh, is actually metanoia, a change of mind, the ver which is used 24 times in the New Testament. And the verb, similar root, is metanaeo, uh, which is used 34 times, meaning to change one's mind. Okay? And uh, it's actually a Greek compound word from the Greek word meta, meaning afterward, and naeo, the Greek verb to think, or I think, literally is the way they would decline them in Greek. So the idea here is to think afterward, or to think again, or to rethink, or to change your mind is kind of the, the uh, nuance. So that's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about this idea of repent. It means to change your mind. Now, like anything, words have to be defined in their context. And so if I were to just come up to you absent any context, and I were to say, Anne, you need to change your mind, what are you going to say? About what? Exactly, right? Because there's no context, right? So uh, context, context, context is the key. And we've talked a lot about this. And uh, I know we've got some new folks, so it might be helpful to go back and reiterate a couple of these key terms that we talked about way back you know, last fall when we first started down this road of uh, key issues related to salvation. But you remember we talked about the meaning of the word save? And we said... You ought to do the same thing with that. Save just means to deliver or rescue. So whenever you see the word save, you should ask save from what? Now, in English, we've sort of become conditioned to think that every time you see the word save, it means eternal salvation from the penalty of sin. 
But what we demonstrated by looking at every occurrence of it, and the verb of, uh, is used 108 times, sozo is the verb, um, that if more than half the time, 58% of the time in the New Testament, the word sozo or save has nothing to do with heaven, hell, eternal salvation, or being rescued from the penalty of sin. Instead, it has to do with being rescued from earthly danger or sickness. So as I've mentioned as an example before, one example, again, almost 60% of the time, uh, it's used like in places like uh, Matthew 8.25 on the Sea of Galilee when the storm arose and the disciples said, Lord, save us, we're drowning, right? They did not mean give us eternal life, we're going to hell. Okay, they meant, hey, rescue us from physical danger. And you see that many, many times. But then sometimes in the context, it clearly means salvation from the penalty of sin. Uh, such as in Matthew 1, talking about uh, Mary bringing forth a son. She shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. What kind of deliverance is that talking about? Clearly, the penalty of sin. It actually says it in the context. Uh, and we also talked about this word, again, going back several sessions, the word soul. The word uh, soul, it's the word psuche, it's where we get the English word psychology. In English, the P is silent. In Greek, it's not. It's a psi, a letter of the alphabet in Greek, and it's pronounced psuche. And it's usually translated soul, but not always. And so is this referring to the physical body of flesh and bone and blood, or is it referring to you know, the immaterial part of man, the way we tend to to think of it, right? When you hear the word soul in English, we think of that immaterial part of us that lives forever, either in heaven or hell, right? But that's not the way the term is always used in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it is, for example, in 1 Peter 1.22, when he says, since you have purified your soul, souls in obeying the truth, in the context there, to obey the truth means to believe the gospel. So to purify your souls means to be born again. Right? So that's talking about the real you, the immaterial part of man. But then in other cases, it just refers to the physical life. Also in Peter, same book, same biblical author, but he uses the word in two different contexts. When he says, for example, speaking of the eight, uh, speaking of in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. So there we've got both words, don't we? Saved, physically, rescued from the flood, but their souls, their lives were saved. Um, or we could go to Acts 27, 22, Paul on the, uh, the ship when uh, the storm arose and they ended up getting shipwrecked on Malta. Uh, he said, and now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. Uh, and the word life, as it's translated in the New King James, is that same word, psuche. So sometimes we see Suke translated soul, and it means immaterial man. Sometimes it's soul, and it means physical man. Sometimes the English translators chose to translate it life, meaning physical life. Same thing with save. Uh, we didn't, uh, I didn't bring up any examples, but in our previous discussion, we did talk a lot about how sozo, save, sometimes is translated healed, you know, but because it, it means saved or rescued from physical sickness. So they just translated it healed. So context, context, context. By the way, sometimes psuche or soul can mean both, the whole being, you know, all of you, uh, and so forth. So it just kind of depends on the context. But we need to do the same thing with repent, right? I've shown you how both etymologically with the compound words and in terms of its usage, it always means, or I've suggested, I haven't shown you yet, but it always means a change of mind. So change your mind about what? So repentance, uh, the noun form, a change of mind about what? Context, context, context. So any questions about kind of how we're coming at this this discussion in terms of a change of mind about what? You gotta let you gotta use biblical words with biblical definitions, not biblical words with man-made theological definitions, right? Any comments or questions so far? I like the I like the, the think about it later approach because a lot of times when I change my mind, a lot of times when I realize I've been a fool, it's 
after, not during, you know. That's so, for sure, yeah. So you, you walk away and then you're like, oh, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. So. And, and so you repent. Now, again, we think of repent in a variety of ways. Hopefully by the end of this discussion we can sort of fine-tune those into a biblical understanding of repentance. But um, it was a bit surprising to me that one of the first ones out of the chute wasn't change your behavior because that is the most prevalent understanding in the Christian world of repent. And it's usually illustrated uh, with a U-turn. You know, you'll see gospel tracts that say you've got to repent and believe. Step one, turn your life around and stop sinning. Step two, believe. And it's a sort of a two-step process to get to heaven, which is not what the Bible teaches at all, but yet that's what a lot of people think about. Yeah. Did you have a question? Yes, you do. I can see it emanating from your wrinkled brow. Okay. Yes, you have a question. I was not having a question exactly, but I was thinking about Joel 2. It talks about how God repenteth him of evil. Yeah. He is not sinning, so obviously he's not repenting. You are so smart, because we're going to actually talk about that. But for those of you that didn't hear him, or maybe if the mic didn't pick it up, he's thinking of the passage in Joel where it talks about God repenting, and he correctly pointed out God didn't sin. So what does that tell us? So uh, how many of you would say God does not sin? Raise your hand. Just making sure you're with me. Okay. So, but yet the Bible clearly says God repented. So we can draw from that the conclusion that repent must not always relate to sin. Right? Doesn't mean it doesn't in some context relate to sin. We're going to talk about that. But it certainly would be a complete overstatement to suggest that inherent within the word repent is this notion of some type of change of mind about sin. That's clearly not uh, the case. And in the passage you're talking about, I'm going to give you a couple of other passages, but of course the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, so it's not metanoia or metanoia, but in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it uses that word metanoia, the verb, repent. So we know that that's the, that it, they're synonyms, the Hebrew and Greek word. So what is the Bible's, anybody else, thoughts or comments? Don't hesitate to throw your hand up at any time. This is kind of informal. I know I'm kind of standing up like I'm preaching rather than maybe sitting around at a table or in a classroom with tables. I made a pitch to keep the tables in here, but I got shot down, but that's all right. Uh, uh, but I, I don't want it to seem formal. We're doing this just because of the video technology and all that. But feel free to ask questions or comments anytime. Yeah. So in the New Testament of Matthew, it talks about John the Baptist calling for people to repent. And Jesus, right. And when Jesus starts his ministry, he uses the same yeah. phrase. Did they have a different meaning for repent? No. Change your mind. What did we say? Every time you see change your mind, I mean, every time you see repent, you should say change your mind about what? So go back and read, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And ask yourself, what was John the Baptist calling on the nation of Israel to do? What was Jesus calling on the nation of Israel to do? Because remember, that was the audience. When Jesus began his Galilean ministry, when John the Baptist announced the coming of Christ, it was both in a Jewish context. It was before the church. So you care to hazard a guess, or you want to just uh, consider that a homework assignment? (laughs) So when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and John the Baptist said the same thing, what were they calling on the nation of Israel to change their mind about? Well, in my mind, I was thinking that John was, the kingdom is at hand, was the coming of Christ. And then once Christ is here, he's speaking of the future kingdom, not himself as much. Well, that's... That's, in a manner of speaking, that's true in the context. Yes, Jesus was announcing that the king had arrived, and so, but that doesn't answer the question, what was he asking? Because he says repent. And so, what should we do every time we see the word repent? We should ask what question? I'll, I'll give you a hint. Change your mind about what? 
So Jesus was calling on the nation of Israel to change their mind about what? Jesus or What's that? John the Baptist. Both. It was the same message. That he was the Messiah. They were hung up on the law and uh, all the rules and the, dude, the whole Old Testament explains that. And that was a big change. So That's it. That's it. You're both right. So the, the context there, and you have to understand a little bit about gospel narratives, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but John's a little bit different, were all gospel narratives. They all presented uh, selected events from the life and ministry of Christ to a particular audience to make a particular theological point. So they were generally... Uh, chronological, beginning with the birth narratives, ending with the Passion Week, but they were put together uh, from a three and a half year period of his ministry in a way to make a point. And so Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish audience to demonstrate that this Jesus, whom they crucified, was in fact the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the long-awaited Messiah. Remember, Matthew, I believe, was the first gospel written. A lot of modern scholars disagree with that. I won't take the time to make that case, but I believe in what's called Matthean priority, that Matthew was uh, the first gospel, which is, by the way, what the church believed for 1,900 years uh, until we got too smart for our own good. But anyway, with the rise of higher criticism, people have now, a lot of them, changed their view on that. But nevertheless, I believe Matthew was written somewhere between 44 and A.D. around, give or take a year. So the church was already, of course, in place. Uh, entire New Testament, of course, was written after the time of Christ. And he was re writing to this Jewish audience, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but to make a point. And that point was that this is the Messiah. So it's very Jewish in flavor. And so they were saying, at the Jesus was saying at the beginning of his ministry, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Well, what did they need to change their mind about? Essentially everything. Because their conception of the Messiah who was to come was completely different than the reality. And after 400 silent years and all of the 613 laws that they had come up with and how they would deconstructed the Old Testament law and, and, and basically created a system where they, the Jewish leaders, could uh, proclaim to be keeping the law, yet when in fact their heart was far from them, they had this notion of this Messiah who was going to come in and be more of a military, victorious leader. And, of course, Jesus uh, and the Old Testament, they should have known this from the Old Testament, but they, they were missed it. They stumbled over the stumbling block. Jesus came first to be the suffering servant and later to come back again as the king. And so uh, the, he, he wants them to understand that this kingdom concept, so, I mean, it's, it's, you were right to, to connect repentance to the kingdom because the verse does that. But I, I'm, I was looking for a specific answer. What change your mind about what? And what they were changing their mind about was the nature of the kingdom. Okay. Well, I guess I was thinking it was the nature of the redemptive path. That's part of it, but there's nothing in that context of uh, John. Let's take John the Baptist message, and Jesus was the same message uh, that was eternally salvific. Well, how do we know that? Well, because later on in Acts 19, Paul comes upon some disciples of John the Baptist who had believed his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, and they had been baptized into John's message. Baptism just means identification. And yet they weren't saved. right? And so they never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so the, Paul, the text doesn't explicitly spell this out, but we know from comparing Scripture to Scripture, the implication is Paul then shared the gospel, they got saved, and then the text does tell us they were baptized you know, in 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 the, to the Christian faith, so uh, to for, for the followers of John the Baptist, they just were basically coming to recognize that the Messiah had come, and they were to say, "Okay, we believe you, John. Thanks for being the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophets, like you know Zechariah and Malachi." And so they were changing their mind and accepting that, "Hey, this the Messiah is here. Tell us more." It was a change of mind, so. The, in going back to Matthew's gospel, the reason that the first thing that Matthew includes after you know the uh, th these messages of John the Baptist and uh, Jesus and then the uh, baptism of Jesus, which actually that was before, but in chapter four Jesus is baptized, 
and then the wilderness uh, experience, the 40 days, is the very next thing is what? The Sermon on the Mount. Well, what's the, Matthew 5 through 7? Well, what's the Sermon on the Mount all about? It's about, hey, Jewish leaders, scribes and Pharisees, and there are a lot of other people sitting on the hill too, but it was directed potentially for them. Hey, this kingdom you think, let me tell you, 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 you've missed it. You've got it all wrong. The kingdom of heaven, and then he goes into the Beatitudes, and it's, it's, it's all sort of for shock value, the opposites. It's the pure in heart, and it's the, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted. And the Pharisees are going, what? You know, we dot all of our I's, and we cross all of our T's, and, and you know, we're not going to be persecuted. And, and then he goes on to say, you know, you, you are proud of yourselves because you've never hated, but, I mean, never committed murder. But uh, let me ask you, have you hated? You, you think you are good because you've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted? In other words, it's not what you do that matters. It's, it's what's in your heart. Have you had a change of heart by faith alone in Christ alone? So anyway, all that to say, that back to your question, uh, and we're getting a bit of ahead of ourselves, but ask yourself, change your mind about what? It has nothing to do with eternal salvation. But like the word save... Like we said, people hear the English word save and they assume heaven, hell. Because of some bad teaching about how to get saved and bad gospel tracts and bad preaching through the years, going all the way back to you know, the, the Great Awakening even, people have equated repent with get saved. And so when they read Jesus' message without a, uh, without a dispensational sensitivity, a literal grammatical historical sensitivity to the context... They think, oh, he's telling them how to be saved. But he might as well have been saying, get saved so you'll go to heaven. But that's not at all what the... It was just simply, metanoia, change your mind. The kingdom is at hand. It's going to be a little different than you thought. And then, of course, through the progress of Revelation, we, get, we learn more. We learn more about that in the parables of the kingdom. Right? Matthew 13, uh, where he begins to describe that the kingdom is going to be delayed and so forth. So... But let's, let's, uh, let's go on. So what does the Bible say about repentance? I want to deal first, since this Bible study is on eternal salvation and, and the heaven-hell concept, with repentance and eternal salvation. So repentance, as it relates to eternal salvation, means change your mind about God or Christ by trusting in Jesus as the only one who can forgive sin and provide eternal life. So it's not a technical term. This is what uh, D.A. Carson would call the, the fallacy of technical meaning. And a lot of people see the word repent and in their minds immediately connect sin and eternal salvation and all these things. You just have to retrain your mind to think, change your mind. So in passages that are speaking about eternal salvation and the noun or verbs repentance or repent are used, it, it, it's got this nuance of change your mind about God. So, for example, um, I used to think I could get into heaven because I'm, I'm good enough or I've dotted my I's and crossed my T's, which in Jesus' ministry was what he was mostly talking to them about, you know, like the rich young ruler, right? All of these rules I've kept, so I'm going to get in, right? And then Jesus reminds them he didn't. So, or I don't think I need, you know, put it in today's context. I don't think I need a Savior. I'm good enough. Or uh, I've uh, been baptized. Or I kept the seven sacraments. Or, you know, all of these other things. But you, you need to repent of that. You need to change your mind. Because none of that's going to save you. The only thing that will save you is trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And so if you go back to our opening verse, and I think I'm going to get to this uh, again in a moment, but this idea of repentance toward God. It's, it's general. It's you need to change your mind about God. God is a God of grace. Okay? You cannot commend yourself to a holy God by keeping a checklist or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or any other human work. It's not going to measure up. God doesn't grade on the curve. You may be better than 99% of everybody else, but if you've never had the imputed righteousness of Christ given to you, it's not enough. So change your mind about all that and recognize that only faith in our Lord Jesus Christ uh, will save you. So if we go back here to uh, repentance and eternal salvation, I'm going to show you some verses uh, 
Because remember, the total number of occurrences is just, what, 58 times. 24 of the noun and 50, uh, 34 of the verb. And by the way, in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have an appendix at the back that deals with every occurrence of the word in context and categorizes it. and shows you whether it's talking about eternal salvation or general, you know, Israel stuff or, or what. So, uh, you know, we're only dealing with a scant number of verses, right? And for those who think that repentance has to do with sin always, and that in particular, repent and this repent and believe idea of you've got to have a volitional change of mind about your sin and you've got to do a U-turn and then believe the gospel. And that's the, that's the salvation equation. For those who think that, and that's not correct, I would point out that uh, the only uh, gospel writer to include a purpose statement, an explicit purpose statement, was the gospel of John, who in John chapter 20 tells us that he wrote these things so that people might believe in the Son, and in believing they might have eternal life. So the whole purpose of John's gospel was to teach people how to be saved from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. And yet, how many times are the words metanoia and metanoia, repent and repentance, used in John's gospel? Zero. Not a single time. So that would be quite an oversight indeed by John if he's telling you how to be saved and repentance of sins is necessary to get it to be saved and he never mentions it, right? In fact, it would not be an overstatement to say that if repentance of sins is necessary to get into heaven and John wrote his gospel to tell you how to get into heaven that, and yet he never mentioned repentance of sins, that reading John's gospel, you're not going to have enough information to get to heaven. Right? If critical information is necessary, that it's omitted from John's gospel, you can't get saved. So we know that's not the case. Um, so by, I bring that up because people make such a big deal. I've made this challenge, I don't know how many times over the last 32 years. There's not a single passage in the Bible that says you must repent of your sins to have eternal life, go to heaven, be born again, any of those synonyms. Not one. Now, we're going to look at several passages that use the word repent in the context of eternal salvation, but it never talks about sin. Right? So though that, that's not the issue. Um, and, and you know, I mentioned that between the noun and the verb form, the Greek words repent and repentance are used 50, let's see, 30, 24 and 34, so 58 times. The word believe is used over 160 times where in every case it is related to how to have eternal life. In other words, more than 160 times, and I've got a list of these in a different appendix at the back of Getting the Gospel Wrong, um, more than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone, period, nothing else. So it just seems that what we've done in English is we've taken a, a concept, we've sort of, made it a technical meaning related to heaven or hell, and then institutionalized it in our gospel tracts and sermon invitations and altar calls, right? And I'm just saying we've got to be biblicist above all else, and let's see what the Bible says uh, about it. Make sense? So if we go back to that opening uh, word, or opening verse, here's a case, again, where the word repentance, in this case the noun, is used in the context of you know how to have eternal life, he's talking here about the gospel message that he's been proclaiming, and he says this message, generally speaking, is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you, in that moment, in that precise moment on a timeline. Where, as Jesus says, you pass from death to life because you meet the God, you, you've trusted in the gospel. What does Paul say in Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to those who what? Believe it. You know, that's one of the 160 passages. So in that moment, you have changed your mind about God. You've come to faith in God. Instead of thinking you can save yourself or that you're already saved, or that you're good enough to be saved, or that you don't need a Savior, any of those false notions, you have repented toward God and are placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So that's why I said that 
repentance as it relates to eternal salvation is limited to a change of mind about God or Christ in, in a general sense. Okay. Here's another one uh, that we looked at. Hebrews 6. Uh, not laying again the foundation of repentance toward dead works. If you thought your works would save you, and then the Spirit of God convicts you, you hear the gospel, you, you recognize you need a Savior, and in that moment you, you decide of your own free choice. Remember, God doesn't force us to believe the gospel. It's a true choice. And you say, I'm going to trust in Christ. And so you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again from your sins. In that moment, you're saved. In that moment, you've repented of your dead works, haven't you? You used to think your works would save you. Now you're realizing they don't. And the writer of Hebrews here qualifies them as dead just because you want to drive home the point you know your works won't save you he could have just called it repentance from works right so i've changed my mind in this sense about god or christ because i i now realize that these things won't save me only god can and he does that by grace through faith does that does that make sense all right so there's there's yeah expound on this a little bit more it's, it almost seems like a double negative even though it's not so so in the right in the context, he's he's talking about basic foundational truths that these believers in the in the late 60s AD, like we've been talking about, under the persecution of Nero, should have known. And he's not going to go back and lay that foundation again. This is basic Christianity 101. You know, the gospel is so simple a child can understand it. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Ten words or less. There it is, right? And so in that context, he says, I'm not going to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Okay, that, that, you know that already. You I'm know your works you, won't I'm save you. I'm not telling you again. I'm not telling you again to change your mind about your works because you've already changed your mind about your works. Uh, and you've had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm just trying to point out here that in these contexts, of course, you don't see any reference to sin. I mean, sin is very much a part of the gospel. In fact, if you don't know you're a sinner, you can't be saved. That's bar none. I list five core essentials of the gospel and getting the gospel wrong. One of them is you've got to know you're a sinner. So if you haven't mentioned sin, you haven't preached the gospel. Because by definition, the gospel is being saved from the penalty of sin. That's eternal life. But knowing you're a sinner and repenting of that sin are two entirely different things. Right? And acknowledging your sin, which is the same thing as knowing it, is not the same thing as repenting of it. I can't tell you how many times when I've made that statement, nowhere does the Bible say you've got to repent of your sins. Um, and by the way, saying that I've, when we video these things, I just added a bunch of work to my day tomorrow because I'm going to have to answer a bunch of emails, you know, or not tomorrow because I won't post this till later. But yeah, I can already see having to respond to these, to these emails with people sending me verses. So just before you send me a verse, read it carefully and, and make sure you underline the word sin in the verse that has repentance in it before you send it to me. There you go. Now I won't get any emails. Um, I forgot where I was even going. I just had that, that panic attack of all this extra, extra work. But So in the context, he's saying, you know, repentance from dead works is something you should already know. And, of course, faith toward God is something you already know because you're already believers. But these are not two steps. That's where I was going. These are not two steps. It's not step one, repent. Step two, believe. He's characterizing our faith in God as a change of mind about God. Because I'm the one who I used to think I was already in right standing with, or the one I used to think I didn't need to be in right standing I now have changed my mind about and realize I need to place my faith in His Son and my Savior to be saved. So I've repented, right? Does that make sense? But that has nothing to do with my decision about my sinful behavior, which we'll come back to. So here's another one, uh, Acts 11. When they heard these things, they became silent, then they glorified God, and saying, this is uh, Peter's uh, report back to the early church leaders after Cornelius, a dirty, rotten, filthy Gentile got saved. And they were like, wait a minute, hold the horses, you know. But uh, so anyway, they said, we praise God that God has also granted to Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, do you see the word sin in this verse? Because I don't. He's just talking about a change of mind that leads to life. 
What change of mind might that be? Well, we compare Scripture with Scripture, and we know, you know, one of the biblical rules of hermeneutics is you always interpret the obscure in light of the clear, and the overwhelming testimony of Scripture more than 160 times is the only way to be rescued from the penalty of sin, hell, is by faith alone in Christ alone. So if they had a change of mind that led to life, it's because they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Make sense? So here's, this is just, these are just examples where the words are actually used in the context of eternal salvation, but we need to ask, change your mind about what? Uh, Acts 17, at the Mars Hill sermon, Peter, if you recall, was speaking to these highfalutin Athenian philosophers, and, and uh, they needed to change their minds about their worldly wisdom and, and recognize that only can they find eternal life in Jesus, you know, and so Paul says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Now most people, when they see that, say, oh, they got to do that U-turn. you got to turn your life around, right? But you don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. I mean, that's the testimony of Scripture, right? In fact, you can't get cleaned up until you take a bath. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room that it's because they believed in him that they've become clean. That is the bath. Faith alone in Christ alone is the bath, right? But so many people think, man, you got to turn, you got to do that U-turn. Or another way you'll hear it phrased is you got to put Christ on the throne of your life, right? That you can't get saved, you can't get eternal life simply by believing the gospel. Man, you got to put something in the game. You got to bring something to the table. You got to, uh, you know, make sure that you uh, are you know you know doing your part and as we've talked a lot about um, salvation is not a bilateral contract where we sit down with God and begin to bargain and negotiate God says I've got eternal life what have you got oh well Lord okay I'll never do this again and I promise I won't do that and I'm going to forsake all of that and I'll stop doing that I won't even want to do that because a lot of people say well yeah but you have to have this volitional change of heart you got to be willing to turn from sin you may not actually turn from it all but you got to be willing to well, what does that mean and how do you quantify that how am I ever how do I know if I'm ever saved if that's the criteria a willfulness to, to stop sinning I mean what, what does that mean so anyway you know I'll never do this. I promise to do that. I pledge to do this. And then finally we get enough and God says, okay, you've got a deal. That's not the equation. It's a unilateral gift. The nature of a gift is no strings attached. No strings. Jesus truly did pay it all. And when we come to that recognition that we are a hell-bound sinner with no hope in this world and that only because of the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, do I have any hope? He purchased with his own blood my redemption, and he offers to it, it to me freely, uh, and I, all I have to do to receive it is believe. That's the mechanism for receiving the gift. So again, and I know you've heard me say this, but the mechanism for receiving a physical gift, if I were to get Gary a present, happy birthday, or happy anniversary, or you're just a great guy, and I hand it to him, how does he receive it? Well, he, he takes it, right? He physically uses his hands. It is now his, right? Well, how do, we, how do we take possession of the free gift of eternal life? By faith. Faith is the means of receiving the gift. That's the reason that, you know, my good Calvinist friends who I love and who are solid, you know, Christians who love Jesus, but they're just so wrong on these issues, can have a category confusion when they say gift, that, that faith is the gift. No, the gift is eternal life. You don't receive a gift with a gift. You receive a gift with a, in this case, faith. That's the means of receiving the gift. Faith alone in Christ alone is the instrumental cause of eternal life, not the involuntary response to it the way they suggest. So all we see here is if I were to read this verse and try to take away all the theological baggage and just come without any presuppositions that Paul is saying that God commands everyone everywhere to repent. He commands them to change their mind. About what? Well, about all of these components related to their salvation, that they cannot get to heaven any other way. 
So you're beginning to see how, in essence, it's, it's not an overstatement to say that every occasion when a person has been saved at that punctiliar moment in time when faith meets the gospel and they're born again, in that moment, we could characterize that as a moment of repentance, right? They've changed their mind, right? I was six years old when I got saved. I didn't know all of the theological implications, but I knew that I was a sinner. I knew I needed a Savior. I knew Jesus was that Savior. I knew He wasn't dead. And I knew that only by trusting in Him could I be saved. Prior to that moment, I I don't know what all I thought. I, I can't go back in time and remember, but I, I knew I didn't have the explicit knowledge of the gospel that had been preached that Sunday night at church. And so I had a change of thinking, change of mind, right? Uh, here's another one in uh, Luke uh, 24. Uh, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should, repeat, should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now notice he doesn't say repentance of sins. In fact, he specifically distinguishes it here from a separate act altogether. Two things were being preached. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. It doesn't say repentance uh, leading to remission of sins or forgiveness of sins because of repentance. This isn't a cause and effect grammatical statement here, right? So yeah, the word sins is in the context, but this is a pretty simple grammatical uh, construction here. Two things were being preached. Repentance, which is again a general statement for change your mind, and the resulting forgiveness of sins. doesn't say repentance of sins leads to forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins comes from repentance. What do you ask when you see the word repentance? Change your mind about what? Right? So uh, this, that's just another example. Or and then another one that I put in this category is 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, just a general statement about a change of mind. Um, and we know what that change of mind entails by comparing Scripture with Scripture. So another point, and this is getting a little bit um, polemic, but you know the, the Bible no more defines repentance as a as stop sinning than it does anything else. So in other words, when they when people come and say that, you know, see the only way to be saved is to repent of your sins, there's no justification for infusing that notion into the word. Okay, the 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 word is just change your mind. We have to fill in the gaps by comparing scripture. Uh, with scripture. So uh, I don't have a problem when people use the word repentance in a presentation of the gospel, but I do have a problem when they say you got to repent of your sins because that doesn't, that's not biblical. There's no place where it talks about repenting of your sins. So uh, repentance and eternal salvation, it's just limited to a change of mind about God or Christ. Um, in other words, trusting in Christ and Him alone for salvation. Repentance does not mean stop sinning. Now, let's talk about that for a second. We're going to go a few more minutes here. Um, so, as uh, Jeffrey talked about, um, there are several passages in the Old Testament. Here's the passage from Exodus after the golden image of the calf incident. And God is talking to Moses, and God offers to you know, destroy the Israelites because of their rebellion. Um, but this was really a test of Moses, you know, faithfulness as Israel's intercessor, Israel's leader, representative, you might say. And Moses passed the test. He didn't forsake his people. Instead, he urged God to have mercy on them. And so the text says the Lord God repented of the things which he thought to do unto the people. Um, what's interesting here, that's the King James. I chose that because the New King James uses relent. And I have my theories as to why uh, the New King James did that. I ha actually knew one of the general uh, editors of the New King James translation, Art Farstad. Um, but uh, relent is just a synonym for repent. But the King James actually uses the word repent. Uh, but if you look at the NASB, how does it translate that? 
So the Lord God changed his mind. Why? Because that's what repent means. <laughs> it does not mean God stopped sinning. It means he changed his mind. Or Amos chapter 3. Uh, the Lord repented uh, for this. Uh, the Lord was going to bring judgment on the northern kingdom. Uh, and uh, God changed his mind. In fact, the NASB translates it that way. The Lord changed his mind. So obviously, just to master the obvious here, if God can repent, then clearly repentance cannot always be connected to sin. Repentance, yeah. So is that word repent just used for our understanding? Ah. Because God knows everything. So did he really change his mind? That's a great question. Completely off topic. But I, I can't resist the urge to talk about it, though, because it, it leads to another whole discussion. Uh, there has arisen in the last 20 years an entirely new realm of theological thinking that is completely heretical. It's called the open, uh, openness theology or the open view of God. And um, their contention, because of verses like this, uh, is that, and it's really ludicrous when you think about it, but it, their view is that God can only know the knowable, and things that haven't happened yet, God can't know. So that they take these passages and passages like in the garden when God, after they sinned, asked Adam and Eve, where are you? Well, in their view, God really didn't know where they were, right? Those kinds of things. Um, but, the, but this gets into hermeneutics, and someday we're going to teach through Bible study methods and all the different figures of speech. But you're, you're right. This is what's called an anthropomorphism, assigning human characteristics to God that help us illustrate the point. From God's perspective, we know from comparing Scripture with Scripture, God cannot change His mind. I, the Lord, do not change. He is sovereign. He knows the present from the beginning. He's timeless. Uh, but we live in the realm of time, space, and matter, and we think linearly. So from our perspective, God changed His mind because he went a different direction. From God's perspective, he was going to do this all along. So there are many anthropomorphisms uh, like that in Scripture, uh, and that's a common figure of speech. We also see uh, zoomorphisms. When, you know, Jesus said, you know, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings, right? Actually, that's technically speaking a simile, because he goes on to say, like a hen gathers her chicks, a simile like her as. But there are lots of examples uh, in the Psalms in particular where the, the, the writers of Scripture use animal characteristics to describe God. And we don't take those literally. So why would we take these literally, right? These are, these are anthropomorphisms. Um, so anyway, that's just a quick little okay. side note. And I'm sure now people are really intrigued by that. But... Um, but the point being, though, is that whatever else repent means, it should be self-evident and irrefutable that it does not always mean stop sinning, right? Um, so uh, repentance does not always re relate to sinful behavior. Uh, people, believers and unbelievers alike, do sin, and we all do need to change our mind about our sin, Right? Uh, so there are passages unrelated to eternal salvation where it does have the context of change your mind about your behavior. So it's not that it never means that. I'm just rejecting the notion that it always means that. And if you think it always means that, then every time you see the word repent, like in Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or preaching repentance, these, gen these general ambiguous phrases, people are going to say, because they think it always has to do with sin, that the only way you can get to heaven is to repent of your sins and believe. Step one, step two. I grew up in a denomination whose denominational credo plainly said that there are two steps. Step one, repent of your sins. Step two, believe the gospel. And I'm here to tell you that there's only one step. And from cover to cover, word for word, the Bible repeats it over and over again. Believe, 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 believe. So, uh, you know, people do need, both believers and unbelievers, to repent of their sinful behavior. 
If you're here, or if you're listening to this or watching this, and you're engaged in sinful behavior, let me tell you, stop. Repent. It's not good. It's only going to lead to great difficulty and consequence and unpleasantness. Uh, but repentance as it relates to eternal salvation does not have anything to do with stopping your sinful behavior. Because you could stop your sinful behavior all day and you're not any closer to being saved than you were before. I mean, imagine, imagine if, just to give you a hypothetical, imagine the worst you know, sinner you can think of, a person that's an unbeliever, completely caught up in all kinds of immoral debauchery, everything you can think of. And let's say uh, Dr. Phil is doing a, or let's, no, let's make it even worse. Uh, let's say Oprah Winfrey is doing a special about clean, how people can clean up their lives. And so she uses some of these people as case studies and brings them on the show and then follows them for the next six weeks. And let's say that this person of his own volition and uh, just being able to just uh, consciously willpower his way through it over the next six weeks stops every conceivable sin that he was committing. Every one of them. And comes back on the show. Would we now declare, since this person has repented of all of their sins, that that person is going to heaven? Of course not. They've never even heard the gospel. Certainly not on the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, and they don't know anything about their sinfulness on the inside. See, that's what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not external, it's internal. And we all have a blood problem. We all have a tainted blood. Wherefore, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. So all have sinned. It's an internal function. The behavior is just a manifestation of what's on the inside. So to require people to stop sinning, either in addition to, or Calvinists say it's part of faith, they redefine faith to have three components, uh, uh, census, notitia, and fiducia, what they called it in Latin. And the fiducia is the part where you've got to make a pledge or promise to obey God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible knows nothing of that definition of faith. It's simply trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so you don't have to stop sinning to be saved. But everyone, for a thousand other reasons, should stop sinning. If you're sinning, stop it, right? It's not healthy. It's not good. And, you know, obviously for the believer there, it's not just as simple as just, you know, willpowering away. The sanctification process, like the justification process, is by faith. We've got to learn to trust God. We get to trust God by knowing God. The more we know God, the more we trust Him. The more we trust Him, the more we'll obey Him. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So this isn't a sanctification discussion, but I just want to throw that in there, lest someone think that, you know, believers, their only hope is to just try harder or do better. But my point is that sin is bad. I want to go on record that I'm against sin. But I am also against the notion that somehow by repenting of our sin, we can commend ourselves to a holy God. We can't. We can't. If we could stop sinning or even have enough desire to stop sinning. I mean, I, I mean, it's so silly to think that a volitional desire to forsake sin would be a requirement for heaven. Because somebody quantify that for me. How do I, if it's necessary to get to heaven, wouldn't you want to know exactly how to get to heaven? Well, explain that to me. How much of a volitional desire do I have to have? I mean, let's be honest. Everyone in this room still desires to sin. Don't look at me like I'm from Mars. You do. And the reason I know you do is because you sin. Paul says in Romans 7 that, that sin wills to have us. We have this desire to do what's of the flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. If it wasn't our desire to sin, we wouldn't do it. I don't sin because I don't want to do it. <laughs> do you? You sin because you do want to do it. The pleasures of sin. So how can we make this desire to stop sinning a requirement and you certainly don't see that explicitly in Scripture. You have to bring that notion to the text and build it into a redefined meaning of faith. Yeah, Sally. If, if not sinning um, could save you, then you'd have to quit, keep doing it because you're going to keep sinning. <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah, so that's another notion. If you have to stop sinning, and again, I'm differentiating here two, two problematic views. One is those who think you have to stop sinning. You know, that's the, the Arminian Wesleyan view. But then there's also those who think, nah, we understand you can't possibly stop sinning. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you have to have a desire to stop sinning. Okay, well, show me how, and then I'll know I'm going to heaven. But in either case, if that were the requirement, then it doesn't add up because you'd get the, the notion is you get eternal life by doing that, is their theory. But then what if the next day the desire to sin came back? How, how does, what happens then? You didn't really get eternal life, apparently. You got conditional eternal life. So yeah, very good point. It, it, we are saved as a gift of grace. Whosoever will, let him come drink freely of the water of life. We receive the gift of eternal life by faith. The Spirit of God takes up residence. And then we begin this new walk of becoming Christ-like, the sanctification process of, over time, ultimately being freed from the power of sin. So remember, justification is being rescued from the penalty of sin once for all. Sanctification is being rescued from the power of sin gradually as you yield to the Holy Spirit over your Christian life. And then glorification, after we die, is being saved once for all from the very presence of sin when this mortal puts on immortality. So much more to say about this, and we're going to get into repentance as it relates to sinful behavior and look at some of those passages. Uh, but uh, this definitely justifies uh, two uh, sessions and you can't tell from looking at the screen, but this is the perfect stopping point because I'm in slide 30 of 60. So there you go. Couldn't have timed it, couldn't have timed it any better. All right. Any closing questions or thoughts? Awesome. Okay. Well, you all have a great uh, rest of the week.